Welcome to Buffalo What's Next, I'm Holly Kirkpatrick and we're continuing our special programming in the lead up to the one year anniversary of the top shooting by exploring the links between Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing and reconciliation. My guest this episode is Reverend Jeremy Rutledge. I speak with him in the churchyard at Circular Congregational Church in Charleston where he's the senior minister. I met with Jeremy to learn more about the Charleston Area Justice Ministry, a coalition of congregations who, in the years after the attack, have been working to campaign against racial discrimination in police practices in the Charleston area. Reverend Rutledge and I talk about what the Justice Ministry is, how it works, and how the Coalition of Congregations provides a network of support in the face of resistance from the powers that be. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Holly Kirkpatrick, and we're continuing our special programming in the lead up to the one year anniversary of the top shooting by exploring the links between Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing, and reconciliation. Both cities have suffered racist massacres, Buffalo just last year and Charleston in June 2015, when a white supremacist gunman killed nine black parishioners at Mother Emanuel AME Church. My guest this episode is Reverend Jeremy Rutledge. I speak with him in the churchyard at Circular Congregational Church in Charleston, where he's the senior minister. I met with Jeremy to learn more about the Charleston Area Justice Ministry, a coalition of congregations who, in the years after the attack, have been working to campaign against racial discrimination in police practices in the Charleston area. In the immediate aftermath of the attack at Mother Emanuel, there was a united outcry against racism from the people of Charleston, and the Charleston Area Justice Ministry has been turning that outcry into action through its social justice campaigns. Reverend Rutledge and I talk about what the Justice Ministry is, how it works, and how the Coalition of Congregations provides a network of support in the face of resistance from the powers that be. He tells me about the realities of the work that it takes to dismantle systemic racism, even after those in power have decried it. It's perhaps a realistic example for us here in Buffalo of the work that lies ahead. Here's my conversation from Charleston with Reverend Rutledge. Can you just explain where we are, please, Jeremy? Uh, sure. We're sitting in the courtyard uh, outside at the Circular Congregational Church. 
uh, which is the church where I'm the senior minister. And this courtyard was actually redone during COVID. It's, it was something we could do. So it used to just be gravel and we put in some shade and benches and it's become a nice space. So that's, that's where we're sitting right now. It's very peaceful. And you might even be able to hear some bird song if we're lucky. How long have you been the senior minister here for? Uh, for 11 years. Okay. So just had my anniversary. Oh, lovely. So 11 years this April. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit about this church? Sure. I'll try to be succinct. You know, the, so the church has been meeting on this site since 1681. It's been meeting continuously. So it's a long story, the story of this church, but I'm going to uh, just share a moment, just a word about what it's doing now. So um, it's a progressive Christian church, which is uh, somewhat different than many of the other churches in town. Uh, so we're very interested in uh, social justice and uh, for instance we're one of the churches that marches in the pride parade we're very much a church where everyone can belong and we hope that everyone feels that they have a place so um, i could i really could go on a long time about the church so <laughs> uh, i'll just say that maybe in every generation we've tried to figure out you know what we could be doing to make things better and and we see our our role as as in the community beyond just the sanctuary walls so yeah. so we'll talk i know we'll talk about the justice ministry but that's um just living out putting into practice our ethics uh, are very important to us so and we are i should make it really clear yes. that we are it feels like downtown would you describe it as that yes we're right we're right in the heart of downtown so um, in fact, I'm told that Meeting Street takes its name from our church, which at its founding in 1681 was called the Meeting House because South Carolina was an Anglican colony. So the only official churches were Anglican. Oh. And our, we were not Anglican. So this was kind of a collection of Presbyterians and Baptists and Congregationalists and Huguenots and everyone who wasn't Anglican came here and they called it the meeting house so i'm told that meeting street takes its name from from that so yeah you mentioned the charleston area justice ministry of which circular congregational is a member what is charleston area justice ministries so the charleston area justice ministry is a collection of congregations and not only churches so there are churches synagogues uh, the mosque is a member we have some student groups so who are not even particularly religious. So it is, it's a collection of groups, mostly congregations, uh, and we join together um, to advance social justice. And really, one of the ways we do this, and maybe I can speak to this a little more carefully, um, but every year we, we look into an issue, uh, something that's really a problem for the community, a challenge, and we look into best practice solutions from other parts of the country, things that are working. And then we press our public officials to make commitments about whether they'll work on this issue or whether they'll advance a certain policy. Um, and we go from there. So how what, many groups did you say? About 39 I now? I think it is. Yes, it is close to 40 now. Um, and that's a, a it was a little bit dry in the way I presented it. I think what's so unique about the Charleston Area Justice Ministry is that it is interfaith and multicultural. And so I've been involved with it for 11 years. 
and it is the most diverse and representative group that I know. Wow. And so everyone has a place around the table and it's very evenly distributed between our black congregations and our white ones. Um, and it also has a lot of women in leadership as well. So it's a really wonderful example of how things could be. And, and it really, it's really quite a contrast uh, to other groups and other organizations in our area um, that really aren't as representative. Yeah, I mean, how much, how much representation is really happening? How much integration or, or diversity would you say around here in, in Charleston? Uh, well, I do, often when I go to meetings, I do a sort of an, uh, a mental audit. You know, I just look at who's running the meeting, who's in charge, who are the board members or the council members or whomever. Um, and I just ask who's around the table. And it is often, and I didn't bring st statistics with me, but I do this, you know, I take little notes uh, when I go to meetings. Uh, it's always disproportionately white and it's always disproportionately male. And I think if I, if I suss this out correctly, it's often disproportionately Christian. So it's not, um, those are wonderful things to be perhaps, you know, but that's not representative of our whole community. So why would a group decide to join Charleston Area Justice Ministry? I think a group would join the justice ministry. So we are primarily religious. Right. I mean, you don't have to be religious. You could just be a humanist. We'd, happily, we'd be happy to have you, uh, just a person of conscience, very welcome. Um, but I think, uh, I think you would join the justice ministry because you wanted to put your ethic or your faith into practice in ways that were practically helpful, you know, in ways that created real social change. And um, it's very hard work. There's a lot of resistance to the work that we're doing, but I think it is encouraging to be in solidarity with other people who want to make things better, who want to work for social change. Uh, and it becomes this, it has become a very beautiful community where we entered it, you know, we, many of us joined because we just wanted to make Charleston fairer, more just, uh, more equitable for everybody. And then we found all these years in that we have a great many friends. And so uh, it's created bridges across the, um, the sort of de facto lines of segregation that still exist in our city. So I think one thing our church members feel is anywhere they are in greater Charleston, they have a friend from that AME church or they have a friend in that synagogue or they, they know someone at the college or the, and there's a real sense of community that's developed, which yeah. has been this wonderful surprise. You know, I think we didn't necessarily go into it thinking, well, we'll make a lot of friends and develop these relationships, but uh, working in solidarity, that just happens naturally. And there's been a connection. It's yeah. been, yes, it's been wonderful. And so, so seeing, um, seeing, I guess, the personal aspect of that, the way people really care about each other. So we do the work for justice, but then also, you know, if someone is sick, we bring them a casserole, you know, and that just sort of naturally happens yeah. from the relationships. What, what do you call it for short? CAMS? CAGEM. CAGEM. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Charleston Area Justice Ministries also shortened to CAGEM. Okay. So what is the process of choosing that social justice cause or a campaign each year? How does it work? So the process, there's an annual process. And, and essentially, we start in the fall, the early fall. And we have listening sessions. So all of our congregations 
uh, divide themselves into groups and have listening sessions in people's homes or sometimes in the sanctuary or, or wherever. Um, and really, we just start with the question, what keeps you up at night? What causes you to worry? What troubles you? What's wrong? And then we just listen. And so we listen, you know, in all of these different congregations in every neighborhood. And um, we take notes and we register what are the issues uh, that are really causing people to worry, that are really making life hard. And then we take the top three, the top three basic issues that we're hearing, and we bring them to a big assembly. Uh, and with each issue, we hear from a person who's directly affected. They tell their story, what they're dealing with. Uh, and then this is, this is a very tender process because each issue matters, and the people telling the stories really matter. But we can only focus our energy on one uh, per year. So we listen to the stories and we pick one of the three and then we decide that's the issue we'll work on for that year. Then this starts a research process where we start looking at what are other cities doing, what's been successful, what are best practices, what, what might we do here where we live, and also who has the power to make that happen, what public officials could propose that policy or what groups can find the money for that or, you know, who, yeah. who can pull those levers, essentially. And then we as citizens um, can provide either pressure or support, you know, depending on your point of view. But we can ask our officials, we really want you to do this. Here's some best practices. And then we have a big assembly in the springtime called the Nehemiah Action, where we call public officials onto the stage with us publicly to see if they'll commit to joining us in this work. Um, How many people are at, at that assembly? Because it's a big deal, I've seen videos and it's in a huge, well, assembly hall. Right, it's a big, it's a big assembly. I think our largest Nehemiah actions have been about 2,500 people. Wow. Maybe a little more than that. Um, and it's really something to see. So, and again, that's a very, that's a very multicultural, multiracial, interfaith gathering, which in itself is, has a kind of feel to it, you know? Um, and there's good music and there's good preaching and, you know, it has a little bit of the feel of a church service. Uh, but also we, we then allow in that, within that program for people to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. So when the issue was racial profiling, we heard from people telling their stories of how they'd been profiled and what it was like. And we heard the terror in their voice. And of course, we know what's gone on all over the country. And then we called up public officials and said, we, we need you to join us in this. We need to address this problem. So um, the public officials are part of it, but I wouldn't discount the sort of public witnessing, the, the telling of stories, a bearing witness, I should say, um, is right at the heart of it. Because all our work is grounded in the stories that we've heard, the stories of our friends and neighbors. And just, just so I can understand again, when sure. you take this vote, is that done at the assembly or that's pre-assembly? Oh, no, I beg your pardon. So we gather in the early fall, Okay. end of summer, early fall for listening sessions. Yeah. It's in the later fall where we vote on the top three. We choose one. Okay, right. Then all the research begins. And then once we get into the new year, there's a lot of work done toward really generating um, attendance, you know, yeah. people pressure. And at the same time, we're doing research and yeah. talking to public officials. We, we talk to them in advance. They know everything 
we're going to ask them. They know what we're working on. None of it's meant to be a secret. And, okay. and in fact, part of our commitment is that everything be done publicly and transparently. And we feel like uh, for so long, business has been conducted behind closed doors oftentimes between just a few people having a conversation. We want everything to happen in public so that people know, well, this is a clear yes, we can work on this, or no, an official mm -hmm. won't agree, or and why. And we really just want it to be um, a different model than that of closed door conversations, but something uh, that's on stage for everyone to see. And in 2015 to 2016, the, the campaign that was chosen was I believe it was called racial equity in policing. Right. Can you tell me, first of all, a little bit about how that came about? Because remember, this was 2015, and that happened. Uh, that vote was was cast after the shooting at Mother Emanuel in right. June 2015. Right. Well, and I want to back up just a, a month or two. Mm -hmm. um, Walter Scott influenced that choice, so. And I know that the country had seen what happened to Walter Scott. We all saw it here uh, and were horrified. Um, so Walter Scott, just for, for context, oh, yes, what happened to him, um, in case people um, aren't aware, he was sh uh, shot by a police officer and killed by a police officer. Um, he was stopped at a traffic stop and he was shot in the back and killed. And we, and we had all seen the video of that. And Walter Scott was running away and was shot many times in the back as he ran away. Mm. Um, and so the community was traumatized by that and was grieving by that. That's something that the black community had always told us about and had always told Charleston about and North Charleston. In fact, I remember that after Walter Scott was, was killed, we were up in North Charleston at a vigil and on the corner they were selling t-shirts that said, do you believe us now, mm. now that there's a video? Um, so the community was reeling from from the killing of Walter Scott already. Mm. Uh, then a few months later, and forgive me, I, sh I should have looked this up, but wasn't it only two or three months difference? Yeah, yeah, it, it, um, yeah very close. Um, and we've talked about this, sometimes memory is a little hazy, that year, that spring leading into summer, um, so many things happened uh, in short order. But so Walter Scott was on our minds, um, then our friends at Mother Emanuel were murdered and um, I should say with both, so many people knew Walter Scott, it's really in some ways not that big a town. Mm -hmm. um, almost everybody knew someone or more than one person from Mother Emanuel, so that felt uh, very personal to people. Um, and so those things, those friends uh, were on our minds. All those vigils, all those funerals, beginning with Walter Scott and continuing through um, those nine funerals. Um, so that's where that came from. I, I know there was a very strong sentiment in the justice ministry that if we didn't, if we didn't do this now, meaning um, take on the problem of racial profiling and policing, when would we ever do it? If not now, when? You know, so there was a very strong feeling about that in 2015. Yeah. So what came from that was a audit into racial bias and policing. Was that in the North Charleston Police Force or Charleston Police Force or both? Uh, both, but those stories were very different. Well, in both cases, there was very strong resistance to, to our 
demand mm -hmm. for an audit of racial bias and policing. Um, with North Charleston, it took fully five years before their audit began. With Charleston, it took two years, mm. two solid years. Um, and in both cases, there was resistance from the mayors, there was resistance from the police chiefs, uh, the city councils were resistant. Uh, and to be honest, that surprised many of us. We thought, well, an audit, clearly, um, clearly it's time to look into this. Clearly, we were seeing all across the country racial profiling, um, police brutality in over and over. I think we all, it was one hashtag after another, uh, one funeral after another. Um, and so to be honest, to this day, I'm still surprised why asking for an audit to look into policing and say, what's going wrong here? Where are the biases? Uh, what can we do to, to begin to get at this problem? Um, I, I'm, I think many of us are still still struggle to understand the resistance. Do you think a, a leader of a black church would struggle to understand it as well? I, I mean, what, what, what I mean is, do you think they were like, oh, of course, of course there was gonna be resistance because there's inherent racism within these within these structures that's a great question i do think i do think our white members were more surprised mm -hmm. by the resistance i don't think our black members were so surprised although there was that sense that maybe now with everything that's happening we can really move this forward um and so certainly i can't speak for our black friends or members but i think there may have been some surprise there too that that the resistance was so strong mm. you know that it was going to take us two years of pushing, of going to every city council meeting, of writing op-eds, of having press conferences, of preaching about it, of organizing people, uh, that it should take that long just to begin an audit. Uh, and all the audit would do is take a look and then you know, come back with recommendations. So I think the pace of change well, I, I was surprised, I can well, say. Well, yeah, no, and, and after such a <laughs> right. uh, horrible massacre, you know, it took Walter Scott and then nine other dead people, so right. dead black people as well in particular. Let's be, let's be specific, but... Right, and may, may I add one thing yeah, about of course. to my previous uh, thought? Um, I think part of the surprise at the pace of change also had to do with the fact that in 2015, there were a lot of public demonstrations of goodwill and quote-unquote unity and um, you know people marched and held hands on a bridge and uh, public declarations were made and there was a lot of there were a lot of gestures and symbols and so I think we thought well maybe we can maybe this will translate into some substance maybe something has has shifted uh, in the light of all of these killings um, so close together in our community where so many people were personally affected. So um, I would just add that a lot was said and we thought, well, maybe now some things can also get done. When you decided on choosing racial equity and policing, you uh, mentioned that it was the first time mm -hmm. that you spoke to other congregation leaders to, to sort of decide that this should be the, the focus this year for the 2015 cycle. Right. So in 2014, and this was before Walter Scott was killed, before our friends at Mother Emanuel were murdered, fully a year before. But there was also the sense that policing needed to be addressed, mm -hmm. that there was racial bias in policing, that there was racial profiling in policing, that this is very clear across the country and also here where we live. 
and some of the conversations that happened, which were strategic conversations around that time, had to do with uh, trying to build up our strength as an organization in order to take on um, racial bias because we we had a sense that that would be a very difficult issue to take on here in Charleston. Mm -hmm. So in 2014, there, there was conversation about that. And I remember some of my colleagues, some black ministers reached out and said, we think we should uh, work on the issue of wage theft, workers not being paid for their work. This is uh, probably not something that's going to be controversial around here, or maybe, maybe can help us build up some strength moving toward uh, the time when we'll take on racial profiling. And so that was a strategic, you know, decision. Let's build up our strength. Let's pick an issue that we can really move forward. And then we'll be um, a little, perhaps a little better prepared uh, for the very difficult work that we thought uh, was coming. And I know that's funny because I've said we hoped it would be easier. In <laughs> 2015, we thought maybe there was some movement or some momentum. But also, we always knew that it would be difficult. So those those two things are related. We mm -hmm. thought maybe this maybe this is the moment, and and we did we did feel that coming into our 2015 work. And when when this vote did pass in mm -hmm. 2015, though, it was it wasn't along racial lines, was it? It was over. I think it was something like over 70 percent of the vote from all the groups and congregations chose racial equity and policing. Right. There was a very strong consensus. Um, and I think, you know, one of our commitments in the justice ministry is listening to each other. And we are a group. And, and, and with a small d, we are a democracy. And so we have these conversations and we vote and we, we try to decide what, what we can move forward as a group. Uh, and when some of our, some of our um, black clergy reached out and said, let's, you know, we feel like this year is a good year to work on wage theft and build up. We, we were listening and, and going in that direction. And then all of us together were able to say, 2015 is the year, you know, now's the time we've, we've become stronger, we've done good work, now's the time to really throw ourselves into to this urgent work. So. Yeah, now your uh, congregation, I believe, is mainly white. Yes. Um, so when you were taking on this, this issue of racial equity and policing, and since, what type of conversations have you had to facilitate or decided to facilitate and right. how does that work because you mentioned to me when we spoke on the phone that um, there was a lot of conversations amongst your congregation about uh, essentially white supremacy right 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 um well one thing we did i think and this was very intentional we had a congregation-wide study and we are predominantly white we're majority white congregation and the study was about white privilege and the ways it operates in our own lives and society. We did the study during the season of Lent, which for Christians is the season between Ash Wednesday and Easter. So it's a, it's a very contemplative, uh, mindful season. And we did it as a, well, I guess we conducted this study in that spirit. We said there's, there's a confessional element to what we're doing. It requires truth telling, it requires vulnerability. It requires non-defensiveness. You know, it's not about shame or guilt, but it's, it's really about truth that we don't always tell. And so if we want to be good partners in the work for justice, we really need to understand more about white privilege and how to begin to dismantle it, 
how to begin to recognize it and then maybe take it apart uh, in our own lives and in our work as a church and then in our larger work for justice. And, and if we begin to do some of that work, tell the truth about ourselves, critique some of the things that are truly wrong, then we'll be better partners in the work for justice. Um, and that's how, that's how that started. And I found that, uh, at least for us as a religious community, it was really helpful to do it in that way, mm-hmm. uh, to say essentially there are some things in us that are, that are keeping us from doing our best work, or there are some things that are holding us back that we don't always recognize, we can't always see, but it's helpful to explore those things with people you trust in the context of respect, love, um, humility. So you can, because some of the things that that we unearth as white people, those of us who are white, um, are painful and embarrassing and shameful and difficult. And so to, to be able to deal with some of those things and go, oh my goodness, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And then to begin to do the work instead of just reacting mm. with emotion or you know, anger or fear or um, avoidance, but to really do the work in a sustained way. And we found that over time, that's the kind of work we need to revisit. You know, new people join the church, we keep doing the work. Um, and each of us needs to do some work on ourselves, I think, so that we're we're good partners in the larger work for justice. Yeah. So. Okay. And has, has that been difficult? I would say yes and no. I mean, when you do that kind of work, you lose some people who don't want to do that kind of work. <laughs> but the congregation on the whole is deeply committed to it and is committed to truth-telling and vulnerability. And so once you do that, once you go into that, um, there you are. It's a, in a sense, once you start telling the truth, um, you, you can't really go back. So, mm-hmm. And I think, to be honest, that's one of the things that's so frustrating sometimes about living in Charleston, is that um, the truth isn't always told. You know, not the whole truth, not not um, the truth of how we got here or the truth of everyone's lived experience or the truth of those who are really suffering here. Um, but in our justice ministry, I think we have a, we have a better sense of, of that truth and that's where we're grounded. So um, sometimes that does put us at odds with, with the way things are <laughs> around here. If, if you can think uh, off the top of your head, what kind of conversation openers do you use to start conversations about that white privilege? I'm trying to remember the curriculum itself. I mean, a lot of what we do, there's, some of it is introspective. You need okay. to, we need to look at our own lives and um, the opportunities we've had, the experiences we've had, things like that. But also a good deal of it is um, listening to the lived experience of, of people who have led very different lives. And, and I'll just be plain, I mean, grounding ourselves in the lived experience of black people. So listening to black voices, reading black stories, learning from black experience. And um, I think just opening ourselves to, to truths that, um, that we didn't know before or that we wouldn't know without each other. Mm. And so um, this was not your question, <laughs> but, no, it's but I think- answering. I think with um, attempts to ban black history and to censor 
the teaching of our true history, um, these strike right at the core of what, to me, our faith is about, and certainly our justice ministry is about, which is telling all of the truth, telling the truth of people's lived experience, and, um, and using that to understand where we are and what needs to happen. So When you are in these campaigns, what's the reception like from the powers <laughs> that be? Ah, um, I think the reception from the powers that be is generally hostile. So um, oh gosh, I don't know how to, how to expand on that. <laughs> there's been a, I think there's a great deal of resistance here to real social change. And there's a great deal of resistance to the lived experience of people who are suffering here. I think Charleston likes to tell a certain story about itself certainly the institutions of Charleston. And one of my real worries is that after Mother Emanuel, that story itself, which is a tragic story, um, was shaped into something else. It was marketed in a certain way. Yeah, I think people capitalized off that story and showed images of people holding hands on a bridge and showed uh, people caring for each other. All of those things were genuine in the moment. They really were. Um, but over time, there has not been any real change that I can see. And, and my concern is that those images and part of that story is used to kind of obfuscate what's really happening here. Um, and again, just market Charleston as some sort of special place uh, when really we're a place that has a lot of work to do and is, is yet to commit, I think, to seriously doing it, mm. so. And wh when, when you organize anything, I think when people are organizers, especially when it comes to social justice or anything to do with social change, you are often uh, perceived or, or painted as nefarious. And <laughs> you're kind of hinting at that now with saying there was resistance, so have people made you, a group of mainly churches, a synagogue, and a mosque, have people tried to paint you as the villain? I think so. I mean, I don't know if villain, if they would call us villains. <laughs> um, it won't make you popular, you know, to push against the status quo and really to call out racist systems and structures and to press for truth-telling, to ground yourself in the stories of those who are suffering and say, you know, a lot of people are suffering here. Those aren't popular things to do, um, but they're conscientious things to do. So I think, sorry, I lost track of the question. No, it's okay. Like, yeah. if people try to paint you as being being bad or or try to uh, discredit Cajuns in any way. Oh, absolutely, and constantly. So we've been... We've been called bullies a lot, which, which I take issue with because bullying is a real thing. Uh, and people pressing their public officials for policy change, that's not bullying. That's just engaged citizenship. So, no, I think we've been painted as radicals, as um, people who can't be satisfied, as people who are not, don't treat people fairly, as we're rude. You know, politeness is, has... Um, always been at a premium here, but things are very polite, but nothing ever changes. So, so if you tell the truth or find your voice or show up in an assertive manner, that's, um, 
that's not welcomed here. Uh, but to my mind, everything we've done has been in about the tone in which I'm speaking to you. So it has a backbone, but it's kind. It's just a bunch of church people, you know, <laughs> people from the synagogue. It's, a, it's rabbis and imams and preachers, and it's a lot of people from church suppers and college professors and teachers on their day off, you know, and retirees doing the research work and um, telling their friends. Um, it's one of the most beautiful things about it is that it is ordinary people who are giving up their time and who are doing what they can. And I think it is very similar to what the civil rights movement was doing. You know, we have those iconic figures, um, King and Abernathy and, you know, go on and on, Parks. Uh, but really what that movement was, was thousands and thousands of ordinary people whose names we'll never know. Uh, and that's what our justice ministry is. So, and they were, you know, we draw strength from them. They were called all kinds of things too. They, when, when Dr. King came to Charleston last, uh, he wasn't popular at all and he couldn't find a church to speak in, is what I'm told. So it's, um, you know, we do draw from those examples in the, in the past. Okay, and then when people have a, some people must have a, uh, excuse me if this is too British, but a wobble. We, we don't really want to rock the boat. What, what do you tell people to keep them going? The, I'm glad you asked that. There's a lot of wobble. <laughs> that, that's also a constant as well. Um, and our public officials, and I mean no disrespect, they're really good with people. And they can work a crowd. They can, uh, they can gain your sympathy. Um, and so often we've heard, well, you're not being fair to the mayor. You're being too rough on him. Or, well, be nicer to the police chief or something like that. Um, and our response to that is, first of all, we really do treat our public officials with respect, like we would treat any person with respect. It is also respectful to say to someone in a position of authority, we need you to do this for us. We expect you to do this for us as our mayor, as our police chief, as our city council person, for example. Um, but the real answer to that is that we are grounding ourselves not in the story of a public official who might be offended by a question they were asked in public. <laughs> we're grounding ourselves in the lived experience of our neighbors. All those stories we heard in house meetings where someone said, you know, I, I can't leave my house because it floods so often. Or there used to be a bus service that took me to work and now they canceled it. Or, you know, I worked this shift and I wasn't paid for it. Or I was constantly, you know, I've been stopped by the police this many times for no reason and harassed or, you know, on and on. We're grounded in those stories um, and in honestly and in the love we have for our friends. So um, we always want to treat people with respect, but the work comes from the stories of our friends who are suffering. If it's possible to sum up in the days and weeks after what happened, the massacre, the racist massacre at Mother Emanuel, how did you, as a, a leader of a congregation, how did you navigate that? Oh, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think, I think, well, I'll speak for myself. I mm -hmm. can't say we, my colleagues did different things. Um, like many people, I was 
very raw around that time. It was, I was grieving also. <laughs> I was traumatized also, not like our friends at Mother Emmanuel, not like that congregation. But again, so many people here knew each other and were close. Um, and so there were, I mean, there were many tears in our church services. There were many prayers that people, including myself, were, were choked up and needed extra time. You know, there were many Sundays when we started with extra roses. That very first Sunday, we started with nine roses laid across the altar table. And the doors were open and all the church bells rang across the city. And it was just, um, you know, people just wept. And, and there was a season of that. I'm not really sure I could tell you how long it lasted. Um, I can also say it was one of those times when a lot of people came to church because they needed to be with other people uh, in a place that felt safe or a place that felt caring. And they went other places as well. Mm. But it was, um, you know, we had the sense that something was happening that was bigger than us, that maybe bigger than our city. But we, when you're living through something, you kind of have that sense, but you don't really understand. So, I mean, we've spoken quite a lot. Of, uh, the whole point of this interview was to talk about the, the change that has occurred since be because of Cajuns. What do you think, what hasn't changed? Uh, Can you summarize that? I can, and I, I was thinking, you know, how, how have we changed? What, what has changed? Mm -hmm. And so I'm coming around to your question. I think some symbolic things have changed. Um, I think it matters that the Confederate flag was taken off the state house grounds. That's such a hateful symbol, such a bigoted and racist symbol. It needed to come down should have come down a long time ago. Well, shouldn't have ever been there. <laughs> I think it matters that the Calhoun statue finally came down. Uh, a person who was a white supremacist and an enslaver, um, you know, towering over our city, including Mother Emanuel a block away. So those symbols needed to go. Uh, they symbolized something and it was something horrible. <laughs> um, but that, that wasn't enough. You know, there's, there's, even as much as the symbols matter, they are superficial when compared against people's lived experience. And as much as it matters, the Calhoun came down, Cal, the Calhoun statue came down, I still think if, if you have no bus, or if your house floods, or if the police profile you, you know, what, what about those experiences? What about lived experience? Um, so the, my, my answer to your question is, I think, I think a lot of things have not changed. And in fact, some things have probably got worse, especially for black people living in Charleston. And we see the peninsula gentrifying. We see people getting pushed out of their historic homes. Um, we see different parts of the peninsula flooding and they're disproportionately people of color. You know, I see the lived experience of people and friends getting worse. Um, and I can also say that all of these years after Mother Emanuel, we still have not closed what they call the Charleston loophole, which allowed 
the killer to purchase a gun even though he could not pass a background check. Our legislature still will not pass a bill to close the Charleston loophole. And though it's called the Charleston loophole, this is a federal right. loophole, um, if you like, yeah, right. yeah. So we have, nothing's been done in Colombia uh, on that account. And we also still cannot get a hate crimes law passed in South Carolina. We're one of the few states that does not have one. Uh, it gets brought up often. I think it's been brought up this year. We've been reading about it and still can't get that through. So, you know, there's been very, I don't know if I can say there's been little substantive change or no substantive change, but all of these years later, we haven't closed that loophole and we haven't um, enacted a hate crimes law. And so, um, well, how do you yeah. how do you make sure you keep going then with with that? Because that's that's all quite it's the truth, right? But it's quite disheartening. So how do you keep pushing, knowing all of this? Um, I keep pushing, and I think I think this is true of our congregation. We keep pushing uh, because of the the relationships we have through our justice ministry, and we just draw strength from each other. Um, and we never forget the stories of our friends, the stories of our neighbors who are suffering. And, and that's how we keep pushing. Mm. Um, and we spell each other. You know, there are times you need to rest a little bit and then get back in. You know, it's, it's, it's lifetime work. We remind ourselves of that. Uh, and I think I alluded to this earlier. We also really draw strength from the stories of all those who went before us. We're not the first ones to do this kind of work. We're not the first ones to face this kind of resistance. We're not the first ones to think, when is this ever going to change? And honestly, um, for two years, two solid years, which is longer than it sounds, we didn't think there would be any movement in Charleston. And I'll never forget the city council meeting after two solid years when they approved the audit. And people were, our justice ministry people were, almost euphoric we couldn't believe they actually did it you know at a certain point you just keep doing the work because it's the right thing to do and because your conscience compels you to do it um, but every once in a while you know the sustained pressure will cause something to shift hmm. um, I should tell you Holly part of part of the shift is that when we attended city council meetings every time they met and told story after story after story in the public comment. And you only get one minute or two minutes, so you have to be pretty organized about this. We just wouldn't go away. Um, and finally, and now, forgive me, I can't remember who it was, one of our city council members said, you know, I've been profiled. And he told his story. And then another person did. And then, another, and then you started to have the stories told by p citizens who were speaking and the stories told by the black council members. And then, then the shift really had begun. And, um, but I was just inspired by seeing ordinary people show up at meetings, <laughs> you know, month after month after month, and you sign up and you sit there politely and you wait and it, you know, you give up three or four or five hours of your evening. Um, and this is after work for most people. You know, it was really, um, it was really something to see that.
yeah. and to be a part of it. So um, as, as grim as it sometimes looks, I draw, I draw on um, those experiences and seeing what ordinary people will really do for each other. Yeah. I should so. say as well, obviously the, the audit interracial bias mm. and policing supported those stories. The data supported right. the experience. Right. Obviously we're here because of what happened at the top supermarket, the racist massacre there. We're trying to see what was next for Charleston after the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel. Is there anything that you think Buffalo can take mm. from your experiences? Oh. Um. I need to think just for a moment. Yeah. This is a very important question and a difficult one. Um, I think hmm. I'm not trying to keep you waiting. I'm no, just no, really I'm, thinking I, about this question. I think it's important that you're you're thinking. I mean, I think one thing we have learned here in Charleston is that building solidarity over time, not just in the immediate aftermath or in the first year, um, and then the anniversaries come and things like that. And those are important and I honor those. But I think, I think building sustained networks of care and solidarity, political action that really cross the lines of race and class and all that you know all those dividing lines um, so for me i i draw hope from our justice ministry because it is it is all of us working together um we're up against a lot to be honest and a lot of the racist systems and structures haven't changed at all some of them as we mentioned may have got worse um, But I, I think there's a community of people here who are committed to doing the work to make this place better. And I don't, it's not an easy answer. I think just, just developing real relationships, real work together and, a, and working on that kind of solidarity, which really is standing together um, and not being afraid to really tell the truth. So it's not, it's not only Charleston that has trouble telling the whole truth. I think it's an American problem. Um, but really being committed to telling the truth and to looking at the truth and um, to trying to understand how we got here so that we can begin to do the work of, of getting somewhere better. Okay. That's not a very good answer. <laughs> I wish. I, it's I a wish, hard question, yeah. and I actually think that there was there was substance there mm. and it's not going to be answered in one answer right. that's why we're asking lots of people right and it's not going to change overnight as as we've seen um so i thank you very much for your time is there anything else that you wanted to add no i mean just you know especially for my white sisters and brothers you know just read as much james baldwin as you can and and you'll be on the right track you know there are certain people who i think could tell the truth about this country with such passion and such a prophetic voice and such beauty and power. And um, find the truth tellers that are to challenge you 
you know, that really push you and um, that maybe call out what is best in you, trouble your conscience, and, and, um, and then find other people in the community who do that too. And, and um, we'll get somewhere. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while, but find, find your people in that as yeah. well. But I do think, you know, finding, finding voices that are unafraid to tell truth and grounding ourselves there is, is a really important thing to do. Okay, great. Well, ending on some great advice there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeremy Rutledge. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next from WBFO and Buffalo Toronto Public Media. WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. My name is Damon Fordham, and over the last 20 years, I've gone through libraries, archives, old museums, and interviews with the elderly to get the stories that have been seldom told elsewhere, and I've collected them into four books, a newspaper column, a radio show, a YouTube channel, travels around the country, uh, courses that I teach, and this tour called If These Streets Could Talk, The Lost Stories of Black Charleston. talking about this, a little bit of background information is necessary. In 1502, Christopher Columbus was on his third voyage to the Western Hemisphere, and in the Caribbean he brought with him a Spanish priest named Father Bartolomeu de Casas. Father Bartolomeu de Casas was horrified at Columbus's enslavement of the Native American, and he said this was a sin against God. Something must be done to alleviate the suffering of these people. His solution, go to Africa and use the blacks instead. In 1527, in his uh, book, La Historia de la Indies, he begged God to forgive him for his error due to ignorance, as he put it. Meanwhile, in West Africa, you had what was known as the Songhe Empire, which is between about modern-day uh, Senegal and uh, Ghana, going all the way to the northern tip of the Congo. That was a vast empire about the size of the United States where its kings like Mansa Musa and Askia Muhammad had formed alliances with Muslim traders to build Islamic schools and they had gold and salt mines. In Senegal, I passed in Senegal on the way to Gambia, I passed salt mines that are still in operation. That was their major source of wealth. So with King Askia Muhammad, the great king went blind in 1528 and his lazy, trifling, greedy sons overthrew him and exiled him to a nearby island and spent the next 30 years fighting over the throne. Meanwhile, in the Arabic Af North African nation of Morocco, they had Sultan al-Mansur, who saw that the Sangay people had something that he didn't have, which was gold, but he had something that they didn't have, which was guns. You see where this went, right? So that led to the fall of West Africa. Now, one of the places that the Portuguese took was Gore Island, off the coast of Senegal. That and Elmina Castle were among the major, that's right, the major slave port islands. And last summer, on May the 12th, I was on Gore Island at the notorious slave castle and door of no return, where Africans were marched through this door that had a plank that led to the slave ships. I went through that, and I'm here to tell you, emotionally, it is a rough experience. 
I have a close friend of mine who is uh, Jewish asked me about that experience. And I said, you've been to Auschwitz, right? And he said, yes. And I said, then you could understand pretty much, you see. But however, speaking personally, now not everybody's going to say something like this because everybody's different. But my reaction to that was a feeling of closure in that actually seeing and walking in the very steps in which my ancestors were more than likely marched to the ships and all that was something I always wondered about. And seeing that for myself gave me personally a somewhat sense of closure. Now, on the opposite side of that were scenes such as this, in this portrait that you see over here. That did not take place in this building. That took place three blocks from here on the corner of Broad and East Bay at the old Exchange Building. From 1771 to 1856, you had the platform for slave sales, right? Where you saw disgusting sights like the little boy chained to the post, the mean looking man with the whip behind his back, and the fellow examining the guy in the chest like he's a horse or something. By 1856, the people of Charleston were complaining to the mayor about having to see these disgusting sights. So the mayor at the time, Mayor Rhett, had an alderman named Thomas Ryan who owned this building, which was called Ryan's Mart. And the deal was that they would ban such slaves on the outside and Thomas Ryan would sell them on the inside. So the people of Charleston would make money without making the public sick. Now that shut down with the fall of slavery and the end of the Confederacy. But one of the ways we know about this is from a man who once sat in that corner with a cutaway coat and a cane talking about his experiences to anyone who walked by who would listen. His name was Mr. Elijah Green. He was born in slavery in Charleston, 1842. And as an old man, he would tell all who listened stories about his life in slavery in Charleston. One of them was of how Thomas Ryan, was so, who owned this place, was so vicious that he would beat them so badly with a whip that he would lose money because by the time he was done with them, no one would want to buy them. Okay? In 1937, he told his stories to a black writer named Augustus Ladson, who used them for what's known as the Federal Slave Narratives Project, where they went throughout the South with that last ex-slave generation collecting their stories. And thus, and so these appear in volumes of different states throughout the South, which also are available inside this market. So I use some of his stories from my book, True Stories of Black South Carolina, myself. Now, in 1942, the Black Women's YWCA invited him to speak. And at the age of 100, he got up there with his cane and cutaway coat and regaled an audience who was largely too young to have known the slavery experience firsthand about those experiences. That was three years before he died in 1945 at the age of 103. Now, Mr. Green is my hero for, one, for these reasons. I grew up in one of those, I was, grew up with probably the last generation of elders who knew people who had links to slavery and all of that. And who spent a lot of time on porches, passing down folklore and folk history. You see, my parents were old enough to be my grandparents. So I was literally the last generation to hear of such things. And to me, as a kid, that was as much fun as Batman and Bruce Lee. So, I, so basically, I'm probably one of the last generation of practitioners of using this kind of storytelling to get this type of information in a, to the general public in a way that they could understand and is very similar to what Elijah Green did well over a century ago. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support. <laughs>